Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelsang. And as part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living series, our guest today, Paul Glenshaw, has an unlikely story. Paul Glenshaw will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates June 15th, 2021. And the title of his presentation is An Amazing Odyssey, A Congressman's Solo Flight Around the World. You can find out more in our show notes. But Paul Glenshaw is our guest today. And see if you can imagine this. A congressman risks his life for a self-funded world peace mission. The Smithsonian loans an airplane from its collection for a solo, round-the-world flight. A pilot makes that flight and does nothing to exploit his achievement. Yet, as Paul Glenshaw will tell us today, all these things happened in 1951 to one Peter Mack. In 1951, Peter F. Mack Jr., a 34-year-old U.S. congressman from rural Illinois, made an extraordinary journey for peace. He borrowed a single-engine airplane from the Smithsonian, rechristened it the Friendship Flame, and flew it around the world alone on a self-funded, self-directed goodwill mission. Along the way, without aids or security, he met ordinary citizens and dignitaries and extended his hand in friendship and became the first person to fly across the Pacific Ocean. This is quite a story. As his constituents' five and ten dollar donations came in, Congressman Mack contributed fifteen hundred dollars of his own money, planned his route, rechristened the plane, as I say, to the Friendship Flame, and then on October seventh, nineteen fifty one, he took off from Springfield, Illinois, on what he called the Abraham Lincoln Goodwill Tour. After crossing the Atlantic, Congressman Mack toured Western Europe, Scandinavia, and the British Isles. He tried in vain to enter the Soviet Union. He flew through the Middle East, Iran, Pakistan, into South Asia, then Vietnam, and Korea, where the war was in full swing. And finally, Japan. He handed out what he called friendship scrolls. He met with dignitaries and ordinary citizens, assuring everyone he met that the people of the United States were interested only in peace. Our guest today, aviation historian Paul Glenshaw, offers a fascinating snapshot of a troubled globe in the aftermath of World War II and the start of the Cold War as Paul Glenshaw uses original images, film, news reports, and audio recordings, which you'll hear in our interview today with Paul Glenshaw, all of which made during Peter Mack's epic odyssey to tell this inspiring story to all of you. Please join me in welcoming via internet phone Smithsonian Associate Paul Glenshaw. Paul Glenshaw, welcome back to the program. It's wonderful to be back with you, Paul. Good to talk to you always, and I enjoy it. I hope you're doing well. Hope family's well. Hope you guys are staying healthy during all of this isolation. I do look forward to getting together with you and talking uh, kind of face-to-face, but it's good to connect over this uh, kind of means today, and uh, my best to you and your family. Thank you so much. Yes, we're all we're all doing well, and, and likewise to yours. Well, thank you. Good. Good. Well, let's talk a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. I'm excited to talk about this because it is it's such an interesting story, one that I just had no idea about. Why don't we start with just you telling us briefly about what you're going to talk about, because I think we need to set the stage a little bit for our audience about this subject. And then maybe since we're all on Zoom these days, maybe tell us how you're going to be using Zoom to engage us. You always do that so well, too, with these presentations. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. So every time I tell somebody the story, I always preface it and I'll do it right now by saying all of this, all of what I'm about to say is true. (laughs) In the fall of 1951, 
a sitting U.S. congressman named Peter F. Mack Jr. from Carlinville, Illinois, which is southwestern Illinois, uh, borrowed a single-engine airplane from the Smithsonian and took off from Carlinville and four months later landed back in Illinois, having circumnavigated the globe on a self-directed, um, privately funded world peace mission. Called it Abraham Lincoln Goodwill Tour. And he set himself on the mission to fly around the world and introduce himself to both ordinary citizens and dignitaries from around the globe as an American seeking peace. You know, they say you can't make this stuff up. You just, I mean, this is just, I, well, my first question is, I'm not a congressman. I've worked for Smithsonian for a number of years now, but do you think they're going to let me borrow a plane? <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> yeah, the story is, you know, I, I worked for the Smithsonian as well for many years. And the Smithsonian loans out things all the yeah, time, yeah. but not to use <laughs> and fly it around the world. And, and this was a record-breaking aircraft uh, that had been brought into the collection by Paul Garber, who was the founder of the National, what was then the National Air Museum. And um, Peter Mack had been a, a Navy flight instructor during the war. He was a very um, experienced pilot. And... It was one of his constituents who uh, he was having a conversation with about the Marshall Plan, uh, which was you know ongoing at that time. And and the constituent said to him, you know, our our top brass talks to their top brass all the time, but the people don't talk to one another. And you should do something about that. And that was the, where the idea was hatched. Um, and then the the you know so the the crazy part of the story is you know that he was able to obtain this airplane from mm -hmm. the Smithsonian. And um, can I tell you a little bit about the airplane and why mm -hmm. one? It was um, an airplane which is actually still in production, uh, an airplane called the Beechcraft Bonanza. Um, it went into production right after uh, the war um, when there was this, to be, uh, this boom in general aviation because all these uh, guys had been trained to be pilots um, – Men and women too, with the uh, uh, the the different the wasps and and the air force and navy and marine pilots. All these pilots were going to want to keep flying, right? So the the general aviation companies had come up with these incredible designs. And I this is another story, but I, this is also true. After the war, you could buy airplanes in department stores. I'm not making that up. So this was very popular aircraft. And to demonstrate its capa capability, a famous racing pilot named Bill Odom um, in – hang on. Let me start that sentence again. Mm -hmm. So a famous racing pilot named Bill Odom in March of 1949 took this particular aircraft, which was the fourth Bonanza ever built, and he took off from Honolulu. Waikiki Beach. Uh, in fact, he called the airplane the Waikiki Beach, and he flew it nonstop from Hawaii to Teterboro, New Jersey, just across the river from New York City. Nonstop. Because they wanted to demonstrate the extraordinary capability of this aircraft. It was completely a stock airplane, except it had additional gas tanks because of the distance. 
Mm. Um, and that's why it went into the Smithsonian collection because it had made this absolutely extraordinary flight. And so when Peter Mack was planning his trip, he knew Paul Garber. And this is where it gets a little foggy. <laughs> <laughs> the airplane was in storage. And the deal was that Peter Mack paid for pr privately and personally the reconditioning of the aircraft. And the Beechcraft Aircraft Company did the work. And that gave him the use of the airplane. And the curatorial records are there, but it's a little smoke and mirrors. You know, there, there's not a loan form to Peter Max so you can go fly around the world. Um, <laughs> so, so the it, it's just an extraordinary risk that they took with this, what was now a valuable artifact, a valuable piece of aviation history. And, and Bill Odom had painted the airplane up, you know, it said Waikiki Beach on it, had this map painted on it that showed, you know, hit the route of his flight and the dates. And it was all decorated up. Peter Mack had all of that taken off. He repainted it, renamed the airplane uh, the Friendship Flame, and he painted Abraham Lincoln Goodwill Tour on the side. And the reason for that was nobody knew who Peter Mack was, but everybody yeah. around the world knows who Abraham Lincoln is. So since he's from the land of Lincoln, that's why. Yeah. Yeah, so Congressman Mack was he was from Illinois, as you say, but he's not exactly the guy because you know in my research of this and you and I have talked a little bit about this. This isn't Charles Lindbergh. This is a guy that was a little bit more understated, perhaps. Right? I mean, tell us a little bit about Congressman well, Mack. You know, the other thing I always say is if you okay, imagine a world traveler, you know, an adventurer. Imagine a record-breaking pilot. You know somebody who goes out to break a, a massive record and imagine a global peace activist, imagine them all rolled together. And then you look at Peter Mack, who is the, that actual guy. And he's, he's the least guy, guy you'd least likely expect. He <laughs> um, was from Carlinville, which was and is a small town in uh, Southwestern Illinois. Um, his family owned the local uh, Ford car dealership. And he had you know, been a Navy flight instructor. He'd worked in the car dealership. Uh, his father had actually run for Congress in 1940 and lost. And Peter Mack decided to run in 1948 and actually took the seat from the guy who had beaten his father. And he, one of his, the things he ran on was that every child in his district who wanted to but could not afford to come to Washington, D.C., he would pay for them to come. And he did it every year. He would pay for a bunch of kids to come out to D.C. He'd put them up and he would bring them to Congress to inspire them to public service. That was that's the kind of guy that he was. Um, he's not, you know, one of the more famous <laughs> uh, lawmakers we've ever had. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was involved with things like launching the SEC, um, the U.S. Travel Service, um, Federal Aviation Act. Um, and he was also involved. There was a, um, a big scandal around TV quiz shows, and he was on the committee that dealt with that. Mm. But um, he served eight terms and, and but he did this trip on his very his his I'm sorry, seven terms. But he did uh, this trip on his um, in the middle of his second term. So he was a, still a very junior congressman when he hatched this plan and then executed it. So this, as you say, this was a journey for peace. The name of the plane, he had renamed this the Friendship Flame. What did he learn in his 
journey across the world. What what did he experience when he was in these various countries? Was he received well as he was dropping in on these people around the world, kind of unannounced, I, I would imagine? Well, you know, honestly, it was a very mixed bag. Um, 1951 is a very interesting time. You know, here at home, uh, the Korean War is very much part of our lives. Um, McCarthyism um, and the Red Scare is is in full tilt. Um, Stalin has announced that, uh, you know, the USSR, the Soviet Union, has the bomb. Um, I Love Lucy went on the air. (laughs) The Rosenbergs were convicted and later executed. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot going on just here at home. And so as he travels around the world, it's really a mixed bag. Uh, there are people and countries that he visits that are very pro, um, America, pro U S pro Western. Um, and then there's some that are very much not, and he goes to, you know, both sides of the spectrum. And with the same message, in fact, he created something called friendship scrolls. And these were these little scrolls that he took um, and he would give them as a gift and basically was a little statement saying, I'm from the land of Abraham Lincoln and I come in peace and that's what we want. And we hope that you want that too. So just to paraphrase. Um, So it was really, you know, the reception he got varied quite dramatically. I'll tell you the places that he didn't go. He didn't go to South America. He didn't go to Africa and he didn't go to Australia. So he kind of, you know, took off from from Carlinville and headed east. And he just kind of kept going east until he got back home. Um, so he he crossed it. His first big stop actually was uh, right here in Washington, D.C., because his one of his main goals was get into the Soviet Union. And so he needed a visa and he was told to come to the embassy here on his own. And again, this was not an official government trip. This was a private thing that he did. Congress was in recess. So he was not going on behalf of the United States government. He was going on behalf of himself and his um, constituents, but as a private citizen. So he had to get a visa. He came here to the Soviet uh, Soviet embassy uh, to get his visa. And he was told, go to Helsinki, ask for so-and-so, and and you'll get the visa and off you go. Um, So he gets across the Atlantic and his first, he stopped in, uh, he made a couple of stops along the way. He stopped in Greenland and the Azores and he gets to Portugal, then Madrid, then Amsterdam, and then he goes up into Scandinavia. And his, um, his Helsinki was actually his second stop there. And of course he goes to the embassy and they tell him that they have never heard of, they've never heard of him. And um, he stays there for several days trying to get this visa, and it never happens. So almost right out of the gate, one of his big goals is dashed, which is to get into the Soviet Union. They wanted somebody also in the plane with him, and he wanted – he really couldn't do that because there were extra gas tanks, and he, and he didn't want – he wanted to do the whole thing alone. So – that was a big disappointment to start with because I think he wanted – that would have certainly grabbed a lot of uh, attention and I think it would have made a powerful statement. So he continued through Europe and Europe was a mixed bag. It was you know, still in a terrible shape. This is only six years after the end of the Second World War. Um, Berlin is – you know, trying to come back. He went there. He went to Paris. He went to London uh, and several other places in in Europe. And it was um, 
He'd gone to Berlin in his first term as a congressman on an official visit, and he's found that when he went back, there had been a big change um, that before there was a lot of hostility towards him as an American, but now there was much more openness and much more receptiveness. Um, Conrad Adenauer was the prime minister there, and he was really trying to reunify Germany with the rest of Europe and, and after denazification. You know, so, so they're in a, a, a tricky place uh, as they're coming out of, you know, the horrible experience of the Second World War. And um, it was a good thing that the Berlin airlift had already helped. And uh, so he, he, it was, he got kind of both sides in Berlin. When he goes to Paris, it's the, they're in the Fourth Republic, which had um, just an incredible turnover. I think it was 25 prime ministers in 12 years. Um, and the, the communists actually had quite a a large presence amongst the electorate in those days in France, about 25%. So he goes there and, and it's a, France is in a very different place. On the other hand, they're starting to make, um, you know, economic agreements between France and Germany after the war. So he's there and um, coming into a place that is, you know, really having to reinvent itself. We are with Paul Glenshaw. Paul Glenshaw will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates program coming up here June 15th. The title of Paul Glenshaw's presentation is An Amazing Odyssey, A Congressman's Solo Flight Around the World. The congressman is named Peter Mack, and we're talking with Paul Glenshaw about Peter Mack's travels. Of course, Peter Mack, throughout the world, met dignitaries, but he also met ordinary citizens. So really, it wasn't an official trip. But he was able to kind of, um, you know, rub elbows with uh, with a lot of folk and and maybe tell us about some of those visits, because it was kind of interesting that he had both extremes, these these almost uh, world leaders, but then everyday citizens, too. Oh, yeah. And, and he, he it was such again, it was both ends of the spectrum. One of the very first sort of ordinary folks he met was a um, a merchant in the streets of. Madrid, who told him, um, you're only here because you need Spain to be a base against the Russians. Hmm. And uh, when the war was going on, there were no friendship visits here. So you're not interested in friendship. Hmm. And on the other Quite a statement. Yeah, quite a statement. On the other hand, mm -hmm. um, he was very well received in Paris and very well received in London. Um, and as he made his way across uh the Middle East. He, he went through Europe. Um, and, you know, the places that had been allied to the United States during the war generally, um, obviously, except the Soviet Union, were generally quite receptive to him. Um, and he would, you know, you have to think of this and just imagine a congressman doing this today. He mm -hmm. won't. He, he didn't have any aides or assistants with him. <laughs> there was no press crew following him around. He had no security detail. He landed at ordinary airports and sometimes at U.S. military bases. Sometimes he'd walk into town wherever he was going or get just catch a cab or get on the, you know, the train or the subway or whatever. And he and he just spent his time walking the streets and, and talking to people, but then also making appointments with with, you know, local dignitaries. Um, and it gets quite interesting as he goes um, out of Europe through Greece and then into Turkey. And Turkey at the time is 
you know, uh, it's a very interesting place, just as it is now. And that's one of the things you see in this trip is places that were hotspots then are hotspots now. Mm. And it's 70 years later. This year is the 70th anniversary of his flight. So, for example, when he gets to um, Turkey, the uh, prime minister there <clears throat> was very pro-West. And um, but the Soviets also had their eyes on Turkey. And it was, you know, how is this country going to uh, fall? Uh, was it going to which side of the coin was it going to land on? And so and it had it had grown enormously uh, in terms of modernizing uh, itself uh, throughout the first half of the 20th century. It had really grown dramatically. And so that was so, you know, so he got a very warm reception in Turkey amongst ordinary citizens and the prime minister. However, uh, then he went to Baghdad and he went to Tehran, he went to Iran, and um, particularly in Iran, he was given a very difficult reception. Um, <clears throat> he met for two and a half hours with the prime minister of the time, uh, Mohammad Mossadegh, who lectured him on all you know, the trouble that the United States was causing in that part of the world. Um, I'm going to pause just for a second while I find uh, mm -hmm. uh, what he said. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, so Congressman Max said that his, his let me start that again. Congressman Max said that his um, reception in Tehran was the direct antithesis of what his words of what he found in in Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, although, <laughs> I'll back up just a second is, you know, is a very human trip as well. The, the Turks were very excited about his coming and they all gathered at the airport to welcome him. There was a big reception and he never showed up because he landed <laughs> at the wrong airport. <laughs> oh no. Oh my God. But you know, that just blew away. It didn't matter. <laughs> he, you know, he had this wonderful reception. He was very impressed by, by what he found in Turkey, but then he gets to, uh, Iran and Mossadegh just lays into him for two and a half hours. Um, he said that the United States should be supporting Iran more. And the more aid they withhold, the more likely it is that Iran will go communist. Mm -hmm. And um, and so they had this argument and Max said he kept disagreeing with him. And finally, Mossadegh cuts off the discussion. He says, well, I wish more congressmen could come over and be convinced like I just convinced you. Um, so, and, and, and then also in the streets, um, uh, he, he found people pretty upset with the United States. Uh, one man said to him, we don't need your moral assistance. So that was pretty, that was pretty cold. Um, uh, similarly, he was, he had, you know, to wrap his head around what he found in Baghdad, which was a very pro Western government, but which was also very repressive against its own people. Um, and, you know, he so he he found things just as they were. Um, but he what's remarkable, I think, is just everywhere he went, he had the same message, whether it's Mohammed Mossadegh, you know, lecturing him. Mohammed Mossadegh still got a friendship scroll mm. and he shook his hand and left with a smile on his face. Mm -hmm. so that that's I and wherever he went, that's how he left it. Um, his trip continued on, uh, into South Asia. 
So, uh, and again, just think, he's flying alone. Um, what could possibly go wrong? And he's got a fantastic <laughs> airplane, but still, he's, he's just one guy. He doesn't have a backup crew or anything. So, for example, he fell asleep flying over the Alps, woke up with the plane in a dive. Oh, my God. Yeah, he forgot to switch the gas tanks flying over the Pyrenees. And then you look at the... And then one of the most amazing things that uh, we found, um, and I'm just so, so grateful to Congressman Mack's daughters, Melanie and Mona, who um, have a lot of the uh, original material from the trip uh, still in their possession. And uh, one of the things was the film that he shot. He shot color silent footage. And he would point the camera out the airplane window sometimes while he was flying. And you look at the terrain that he's flying over from Tehran to um, a, an airbase in, in Saudi Arabia, U.S. airbase, and then over to Karachi. And it's really daunting. And he's by himself. And uh, he actually has a very close call when he's crossing the Pacific. Um, but then, you, you know, he, he gets to uh, Pakistan and to India. And they've just become independent in 1948, and they've separated, and they've had a huge war. And they're these, you know, one is a, a, a brand new Muslim country, and the other is, you know, what will become the world's most populous democracy. And they're, the growing pains are incredibly intense. Gandhi had been assassinated three years before. Um, so he found a more chilly reception in Pakistan and a warmer reception in India. Um, Really, real the contrasts mm -hmm. were really fascinating. Yeah, it it's just this really it, almost a beautiful story of this one man, self funded, self directed, goodwill mission, very inspiring. Did you walk away as inspired as because to me this is a very inspirational message here. Yeah, I I, I you know we live in such a cynical time. Mm -hmm. and, you know what was in it for him. Um, you know, the press did keep accounts of him. His, his friends back in Carlinville uh, evidently subscribed to a clipping service. And there were newspaper reports from all over the world about him. Um, and so he was getting attention for the thing, but that's not why he did it. Uh, when he came back, he, um, he never exploited the trip. There was no, you know, uh, book or book tour. <laughs> Or as I know, he he gave a speech the night after he arrived to the local Elks Club. Mm -hmm. He visited a middle school that had been a local middle school that had been following his trip. He visited the so eighth grade social studies class, and he uh, wrote one magazine article about it, mm. and that was it. And his daughter said he never really spoke about it. It was something he had done. He set out to do it. He did it. I was done. Um, so I find that part very inspiring as well mm -hmm. that he did it for the reasons that he said he did it and that was it mm -hmm. he did kind of trying to make a buck off of it mm -hmm. and i'm that's very impressive especially mm -hmm. well among the original material that you found was an audio clip and i believe this is from and and i'd like you to just set it up because we're going to play this here now but but just set it up a little bit for us because i believe this is a reporter who approached him upon landing in the U.S. in, in uh, Carlinville? Is that is that? Do I understand that correctly? Yes. So I'll set it up a little bit by just Great. telling um, 
that Peter Mack was a very happy guy to come back. He left in October of 51. He came back in January of 52. And one of the most extraordinary things about his entire trip is when he did the Pacific leg, when he flew from Tokyo to San Francisco, uh, making uh, three stops along the way, he actually became, so far as myself and uh, colleagues at the National Air and Space Museum can tell, he was the first person to fly solo across the Pacific. Mm. And when he was making the leg from Iwo Jima to Wake Island, which is this tiny, tiny little dot in the middle of the Pacific, he lost one of his instruments, his artificial horizon. And so he had to navigate um, by a method called needle and ball, it's arcane aviation stuff. But um, when his watch told him that on the course he was heading and the time he he was supposed to arrive at Wake Island, he, he didn't see it. And he didn't see anything. Hmm. And he was just flying, hoping that he was going to find this speck in the ocean. And uh, this and this was the same area where Amelia Earhart disappeared. Hmm. And he, he, there was one thing he kind of opened up about. He said, you know, he sensed her. Uh, and he really thought about her. And so there's this little bit of footage that he shot from the plane of Wake Island. And that footage is, I'm not going to die today. Hmm. I'm going to land. I'm going to be okay. <laughs> so he, he, he makes it across the, uh, the Pacific and does a couple stops in the United States through Arizona and Texas. And he flies up to um, where he ended the flight, which actually is in Springfield, Illinois. So although he took off from Carlinville, his very first stop was Springfield. Adelaide Stevenson was there to see him off, and mm. there was a big uh, local event to, to see him off, and a bigger one upon his return. So there's this recording that his family had. It's nearly an hour long, and it's this intrepid local radio reporter who is narrating his arrival. You know, even before the airplane is seen, he actually had a Navy escort. Two Navy planes were flying with him. <laughs> um, and so the, this reporter is describing everything. Now we see Congressman Mack and we see the Navy planes. The Navy planes have landed. Congressman Mack has landed. And <laughs> he's, he's talking the whole time. And so Mack pulled the airplane into a hangar. And you hear the high school band starts to play. And you hear, um, you know, the, air, the roar of the airplane. And he shuts it off. And the reporter is tugging on his, on his uh, cord. You know, he's not got a wireless mic. He's got a cord and it's not long enough to get to the to the cockpit of the plane. And he gets there just as Congressman Mack opens the door. So you'll hear band, you'll hear cheering um, and 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 this reporter actually landing that that special moment when Peter Mack gets out of the airplane. Let's play that now. Here he comes, stepping out on the wing, Congressman Peter F. Mack. Oh, well, we're back with aviation historian Paul Glenshaw. We just listened to the clip from uh, Congressman Max Landing and uh, the reporter, the intrepid reporter's questions of Congressman Mack. Paul Glenshaw, let's... Uh, Let's wrap this up. I know, I know you're very busy, but what was it that was perhaps the most important aspect of uh, Congressman Mack's trip? What was it that, that you learned that you felt was just something that we can all kind of walk walk away with and, and look at as being um, historic? Well, 
I think it's, you know, the old saying, 90% of life is showing up. And Peter Max showed up. He didn't make a speech on the floor of the house about how, you know, the U.S. is the world's friend. He went out and got out of his airplane and walked the streets and met people and, and proved that, you know. So, you know, when he was coming, the sort of last big leg of his trip was through uh, Southeast Asia and then to East Asia. You know, he found a very pro-American, very warm reception in the Philippines. Um, but then he flew up to Korea to a place called Kensan and was at a U.S. base. But the war was going on and he went out with his camera and he interviewed people who had just previously been occupied by the by the North Koreans and the Chinese. Um, so he sees, you know, the Philippines regrowing and coming back after the terrible devastation of the war there. But then he goes right into a war. Um, he goes to Tokyo. The, the Treaty of San Francisco had just been signed that year, you know, uh, and and he sees Tokyo, this bustling city regrowing. But then he also goes to Hiroshima and he sees the, you know, this place still absolutely devastated. So he went with open eyes. And I think that's the most important thing. He went with a clear message and a clear purpose, and he never wavered from that. He always delivered his message, but he went with open eyes and he took people as they as he found them. Um, and all he wanted to convince them of was that he and his constituents wanted peace. And what do they want? And that's what he came back with. Um, if I could, I'd like to just quote from what he wrote about it. Um, you know, he was flying um, all alone, so he had a lot of time to think. And he said, during those lonely hours, I thought more and more of peace and of the folly of man fighting man. And wherever I went, I found people echoing my sentiments. Even a minor flight like mine excited their imagination about how God's air was the medium for the free interchange of friendship and friendly ideas. And I think that's either the humility of of his character, coupled with the courage and the stamina and the endurance to to execute this flight, and then he, you know, to go back to just being a congressman. I think that's in, inspiring. Um, and he did bring the airplane back in one piece. <laughs> <laughs> his, his, he loved flying, and he was an excellent pilot. Uh, and and the airplane. Um, you know, he he it, 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 he set another record with it. So it's an incredibly special aircraft now. Um, he hit 45 cities, 33 countries. He was gone 113 days and he flew 33,000 miles. Hmm. And is it still in the archives of Smithsonian? Will we will we get to see it at some point, too? Well, absolutely. What's exciting about it is it has been on display. It was it was um, completely refurbished again. And so now one side of the airplane has Bill Odom's. Honolulu, New Jersey, things <laughs> on it. And the other side has Peter Max around the world flight mm -hmm. on it. So both. Um, it's in beautiful condition. It's been on display for years out at the Udvarhazi Center out near Dulles Airport. Mm -hmm. um, but with the uh, renovation of the National Air and Space Museum's building on the National Mall, it will be in. Um, it'll be the centerpiece of one of the new galleries that's going to be there with his story. So that's incredibly exciting that this story will come out from from you know the covers and uh people will be able to to see it and hear it it's it's always so great to talk to you i learned so much but this is one of those stories that i think people are just going to love and 
And I just really want to encourage all of our audience to join Paul Glenshaw coming up here on uh, June 15th, the story of Peter Mack, Congressman Peter Mack and his odyssey, solo flight around the world. Paul Glenshaw has gathered news reports, audio recordings. Of course, we just heard a, a brief snippet from and film, original images. All this is just wonderful stuff of a a time in the world history when it was a, kind of a, di- a difficult moment. And so this story just comes together so well in Paul Glenshaw's telling. Paul Glenshaw, thanks for your time today. We look forward to hearing more from you about aviation history. But uh, thanks for your generous time today about this, uh, gathering all of these details about Congressman Peter Mack. Oh, you're most welcome. It's my pleasure. I hope uh, I hope people can tune in. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing story. Thank you so much, Paul, for the opportunity to talk to you. My thanks to Smithsonian Associate Paul Glenshaw. Paul Glenshaw will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates Program June 15th, 2021, and the title of his presentation is An Amazing Odyssey, a congressman's solo flight around the world. You can find out more in our show notes. My thanks as well to the Smithsonian Associates team for all they do to support the show. Of course, my thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please be well, stay healthy, and vaccinated. And remember, let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.